This is DC Beat, Episode 3, October 26, 2017. Next Generation 911, what it is and how we get there. This episode of DC Beat is brought to you by TIA's Capitol Hill Event Series. Convening policymakers and industry experts to discuss how advancing connectivity and innovation will empower consumers and businesses, generate investment and economic growth, and spur job creation across the country. Learn more at TIAonline.org. Welcome to TIA Policy Podcast Series. This is DC Beat. I'm your host this week, Dan Henry, Senior Manager for Government Affairs here at TIA. This is Episode 3 of the TIA Policy Podcast Series. So subscribe to us via iTunes or get a link for whichever podcast app you prefer at tiaonline.org slash podcast. So we're talking here today about 911, the current generation, the next generation, and how we get from here to there. Here to talk about that with us today are Craig Dollar, Director of NG911 Strategy for Motorola Solutions, and Patrick Halley, Executive Director of the NG911 Institute and partner at Wilkinson Barker Nauer Law Firm. Thanks so much to both of you guys for uh, taking some time to come and chat with us today. Thank you. For having Thanks us. for having us. So the first thing we want to start out with is uh, sort of set the stage here. What what does a, a current generation uh, public safety answering point, a PSAP, look like? So in today's world, you know, they're fairly legacy still. Uh, you know, 6,500 6, or so PSAPs in the United States, give or take. And generally speaking, they're uh, still on some legacy technology, TDM technology, if you will, which is put in place and designed to specifically connect to the TDM and analog switching network in, in which it interfaces. So you've got, um, you know, 50 plus year old technology feeding uh, a 911 center uh, with a couple of connections out to databases where you can get uh, you know, location services, alley or automatic location identification services. And you have some serial outputs uh, once you receive these calls into other subsystems uh, that are also pretty aged um, and don't really you know, interface data uh, the way we'd like to see in the future. So You've got, uh, you know, PCs sitting in front of call takers, receiving calls on legacy networks, and they get the call reliably, albeit, uh, and uh, you, get a, you get a little bit of location data, and the rest is really on the call taker. So it's, it's largely a voice system still. Yeah. Um, so this is 2017. Um, I, you know, people send text messages asking somebody to call them because we don't actually want to talk to anybody, right? So like, don't call me unless I text you to let me know. You know what I mean? Like, we're in a very data-centric text world. We're communicating via Snapchat. I haven't done that yet, but I understand it's pretty interesting. <laughs> sure, we, we believe you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so we, we're in an environment now where it's very data-rich. It's very video-centric, uh, data-centric, image-centric, much less voice-centric in terms of how we communicate as people, right? That's not how 911 works. Um, and historically, you know, 50 years ago was the first 911 call almost. Uh, February 2018 will be the 50th anniversary. It was a voice call. And as technology has progressed over time, we've added a little bit of capability since 1968 to what a 911 call is and thus what a 911 call center looks like. And so it's a voice call coming in from, an, from one person being answered by another person. That person is then going to uh, dispatch or work with somebody else to dispatch the emergency response, but it's all about voice. 
Um, and um, where we're headed is fundamentally not just about voice. It's about trying to figure out how that 911 system can take advantages of, of the way uh, that we communicate regularly. It's, it's going to be a voice call most of the time. Right? I mean, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're starting to see text messaging now for the first time in about 20, 25% of the 911 centers. Um, some of it with location, some of it not with location, depending on how it's being done. But it's it's um, uh, it's that's about all we're able to do right now. And you know, there's we, we it's not a technology problem. We can do more. It's just a question of transitioning from this older system right. to the newer system. And the, the kind of the mantra in the industry right now is call if you can, text if you can't. That's right. Right. So uh, calls are important. That, that human communication is extremely important. But if you can't for whatever reason. Text is very valuable, and it's it's proving itself as it rolls out, you know, intermittently. It's actually interesting. Uh, when text to 911 was first being talked about, there was a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. And there still is pushback there in some is, communities yeah. yep. who, like, like, look, we have, uh, you know, we have telecommunicators trained to answer phone calls. That's what we do. We're not a multimedia center here, right? right? We're, and, and we're concerned that we're going to get thousands and thousands of text messages. <laughs> so it's very interesting. I was at a 911 center in uh, the just north of Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. And the 911 center director there said he was a little uncertain about whether or not they should move to, to text capability. So now the state of Indiana, the, it's statewide, every 911 center is capable of receiving text messages. What's interesting that I hadn't thought about was uh, one of the sort of, in my opinion, unintended benefits, or maybe it was an intended benefit and I just didn't know about it, was they, number one, they haven't been flooded with texts. People still call when they have 911. So it hasn't mm. been this this massive amount of new data that they have to deal with, um, number one. Number two, lives have been saved because of text messages. To Craig's Absolutely. point, it has worked. Sometimes, has worked. especially domestic uh, violence situations, mm -hmm. particularly for the deaf and hard of hearing community, right. you know, with text messaging now, we don't have to do a separate TTY system, which a lot yeah. of PSAPs hardly get any TTY yeah. communications. And they, they had kind of adopted that philosophy even before we had... Right. At, you know, at the PSAP had incorporated the, so they they were kind of uh, you know way ahead ahead of that, and uh, this is a big boon for the deaf and hard of hearing community. No so, doubt. so one the, that the fear wasn't realized. Two, there's been real benefits, and three, which I hadn't thought about, nine one centers get a lot of calls where there's hangups, mm -hmm. and so they they don't know why the person called. Right? Um, sometimes if it's a landline, they know the address. If it's a wireless call, which 80 plus percent are now, plus percent. they have a general sense of where you are, but not, and, and with varying levels of precision, but not necessarily exactly where, right? right? So what do you do? So you call back. Most people don't answer when you call back. Maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe they didn't mean to dial 911, mm -hmm. whatever. They don't. And it doesn't come back saying 911. It comes back as just some unknown 10 digit That's phone correct. number, right? So yeah. now what these folks in Indiana are doing, because they have the capability of texting out. So they send a text message to the mobile number who just dialed 911 but hung up, and they have this very high response rate. Mm -hmm. So No, not an emergency. Or yes, it's an wow. emergency. Please send help. So that's sort of this, an example of modern technology. It's not the primary form. Call right. if you can, text if you can. That is a theme. Um, but it's had definite benefits, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So uh, you mentioned uh, you know, sort of in passing, I guess it's, it's a given thing that people are using mobile phones to, to call 911, um, which is, you know, kind of a, it's a, this highly advanced technology, this highly advanced network connecting to this 50-year-old network. Um, what are some of the issues that you see with that? Um, 
what could be improved on that? Where I, I guess where's the weak link? It sounds like there's you know you've got semi-advanced PSAPs on one end, and then very advanced caller mm-hmm. technology on the other hand. What's happening in the middle? Well, I, I think um, we we talked about earlier the speed in, in which these uh, calls take place in the network. You have a, you have a rich experience with a cell phone, and when you dial your neighbor or your friend, you you know you get almost you know instant ringing and. Um, so the speed has has become a custom, uh, you know, to that network. When you dial nine one one, it goes through a much more labored, staged process of sending and resending digits, which takes seven to eight seconds uh, in most cases if it's still on a legacy network, which most are. As we transition into the IP world, your experience will be much more like your cellular experiences today, which is what people would expect. So I think the, the the expectation of the users versus what the reality of the service that they get sometimes doesn't line up today, and that will certainly uh, go a long way in matching those expectations. And you know, you can get a, a NG nine one one call in a second or a second and a half or so. So uh, a, a huge, huge issue is speed, and the other is location. Uh, you had talked briefly about location. Uh, we get course location or you know approximate location, a lot of different terms. But uh, one of the one of the long-term expectations of the end state of the full the fully deployed NG911 network is precise location, almost you know almost handset uh, location uh, expectations, and that a lot of folks think that's what we have already today, and when yeah. and when they're discouraged that that that's not the case, in some cases there is no location whatsoever it's still across the country. Um, yeah, so but there's definitely efforts ongoing definitely effort. to, to improve the location accuracy within the public safety community, within the carrier industry, um, mm-hmm. to take advantage of the, the numerous data points that are out there from right. Wi-Fi access points to Bluetooth beacons to GPS signals to handset-generated mm-hmm. location. Um, so as we transition, I mean, it's an issue now, right, location accuracy for wireless phones. Um, and the FCC has certainly looked at that issue, and they're trying to sort of uh, get towards a more accurate dispatchable location address, including right now, I don't know what floor we're on in this building, but um, when I dialed 911, it wouldn't say what floor I was yeah, on. The Z coordinate. The Z coordinate. Right. So you wouldn't know what to say. Well, if I could high. tell them, yeah, that's right, I wouldn't know. Probably right? Wouldn't Hopefully know, one yeah. of you would help me, but yeah, yeah. it depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but in terms of some of the challenges, so I look at it as kind of we, we, the network that the 911 center is connected needs to be upgraded. That's sort of a core functionality, right? So as Craig was talking about earlier, a lot of them, I, I think most still, are connected to this, the, the TDM, uh, traditional legacy networks, mostly right. operated by the, the incumbent local exchange telephone company. That's right. Um, and that's kind of how it worked in the past, right? Every county government would say, all right, we're going to there's a tariff, and we're going to go ahead and pay the, the local ILEC. They're going to make sure our call, the 911 calls get delivered and routed into bundled our 911 service. I don't need to worry. No worries. Get bundled. And I'll get a voice and they'll tell me the address. That's right. right. Uh, when, so we're moving to an environment where you're seeing statewide emergency services IP networks or regional versions of those. Uh, and so that, that's a, a key issue is getting the network upgraded that the 911 centers are on. You know, and it's, there's a lot of benefits for NG911 that are not just about the consumer. It's also about the network. It's about the reliability and redundancy for the 911 sure. system itself. So there's a hurricane in Vermont several years back where the primary 911 center got knocked out completely. Not a single call was dropped. 
because they just rerouted over the shared network right. and all the calls were answered. Number zero dropped uh, uh, at the alternative, the secondary 911 center. Um, it was just in Illinois, very rural county where uh, 15 or so, about a dozen counties got together uh, and formed a consortium. And so instead of doing this sort of county by county at differing times, they got together, they formed a consortium, and they're all sharing a shared regional network. And same thing. This is a, a 911 center that had three seats two people on shift at a time uh, in a very rural area. And when they have more than they can handle, it's okay because the neighboring counties right. can just answer the calls for them. So there's that network piece is important. And yeah, those, talk, yeah. yeah, those host remote deployments, yeah, that's, exactly. that's kind of what they're called. And uh, at Motorola, we, we do a lot of those across the country. And that's, that's certainly on the increase, not only for the ability to transfer calls around in a more distributed, more uh, geographic nature, because as we talked about earlier, if you're tied to a selective router, more than likely you can't transfer a call to any PSAP that's not on the same selective router as you. And that could be very limiting geographically. So if you want to have, you know, you know backup and alternate route strategies like uh, Patrick was talking about, you can somewhat be limited in today's world. You can go to an admin line and, you know, get out, but you, you lose all your data elements, what, what data you have. You get in a host remote deployment, and that data can be shared in a, a larger regional environment. I take a call at PSAP A and need to transfer it to PSAP B, all the data and historical elements go with it. And these IP networks allow us to do that. So um, you know, it's, it's really important. And I can transfer calls to PSAPs that I may have never had access to. And so that shared experience not only is positive for call flows and, um, you know, these emergencies don't, don't dictate ladder boundaries like we tend to uh, think about in the telephone um, uh, Even the world. term selective router, right? Yeah. That's a switch. It's yeah. a circuit switch. It's a switch. Yeah. And we're, not, we're moving out of circuit switch, right. exactly. generally speaking. Probably slightly slower on the 911 Absolutely. infrastructure yeah. side than, let's say, you know, the Verizons and T-Mobiles and the Comcasts of the world are moving towards all IP communications. And so it's, it's a really interesting time for 911 because the carriers, all of them, whether they're mobile or fixed, are all moving all of their, their, their communications to, you know, all fiber IP-based systems right. or, or just wireless IP-based systems. Yes. You know, as, as the copper goes away, it's being replaced with, with fiber, it's being replaced with wireless, and it's mm -hmm. all IP. You can't have that happen and then have the 911 right. system stuck back <laughs> hard on. To, it's hard to coexist. You can't even find yeah. people yeah. to fix the equipment anymore, <laughs> That's honestly. Right. Yeah. So, well, I have actually seen uh, a few places, I won't name names, but there, I've seen some places where there are uh, selective routers that are that are in place that need to be decommissioned because of what Patrick just said. The carriers have moved beyond that, but they're left in place just to process 911 calls. And that is an expensive proposition. That's, that is a, that's, that's a really important point because you, 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 have, fun, you have limited funds, right? So one of right. the challenges we have is, is definitely funding. And 911 is funded uh, via fees at exactly. the local and state level, it's for a you know a limited amount of money. Um, generally speaking, the 911 system works, so we'll just budget to continue what we've been doing. It's fine, no need to worry about this, right? Um, nobody sees the 911 system. It's usually folks in a, a brick building that nobody knows even where it is. <laughs> um, you see the, the police and fire and EMS responders out there every day, so it's more in the psyche of the of the average sort of consumer and politician about the need to sort of fund and, and upgrade those systems. You don't hear about 911 very often because it works. Um, but we have to maintain the legacy system as we upgrade. But if we have a limited amount of money, 
what you're going to do is have situations like Craig just talked about. You're going to maintain the legacy infrastructure for as long as you can and not upgrade. And um, that's going to, that creates problems for the functionality of the system. Ultimately, that's probably creating efficiency losses and potentially overall system <coughs> cost savings mm -hmm. over time. Um, well, so. The problem just moves downstream. You know, for, for everything that we're paying for that we shouldn't, it, it, you know, it competes for, you know, valuable funds to, to you know, move along in a more precise manner in other areas. And, and oftentimes that is at the degradation of the service past the PSAP, so you get the call. But then, as Patrick said, you're moving it out to first responders. Yeah. Um, you know, th those, those well, networks are limited. And, and while the carriers are transitioning their, their networks to all IP, so are the responders. Yes, right. Absolutely. We can talk about FirstNet, but whether it's FirstNet, whether it's folks who are using some other existing commercial wireless system, um, whether it's off the shelf or whether it's public safety specific system, they're all moving to IP. Mm -hmm. So, and the consumers, obviously, because they're using the carrier networks, That's everything right. they're doing is IP. So, what we would really need to avoid is have these consumer public with all these fancy devices and capabilities, from text to image to video. To, and then similarly have that same capability being rolled out for the responders in the field and then have this island of 911 in the middle when the opposite should be true. We ought to have the 911 system in the middle of all that just as modern and just as upgraded as, as everybody else right. so that there's a seamless you know, data <clears throat> flow among all those parts. Yeah, you, you, hear, you often hear this statement, um, any device, anywhere, anytime, do I have that right? Yep. And so that, that's a way to look at it. And right now that certainly doesn't persist across the ecosystem of... Uh, of the country it's it certainly is in certain places but in, in many places it, it does not translate so 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 it sounds like if i can run down a few of the things sort of holding 911 back from being just as modern as as commercial networks and, and technologies is there's this funding issue um yes there's sort of a uh, a patchwork issue the different psaps have different needs, um, different requirements, um, and there's the need for reliability. Is that is that correct? Is sort of the you know I mean we talked well, certainly earlier. more to it than that, but yes, okay. you're right. Um, um, what am I missing? It's well, I, I would say funding is critical, no doubt about it. Um, and uh, you know every state and every region is different, right? Some states have only a couple of 911 centers, Vermont, for example. Some some have several hundred. Um, and they're not always, and it's not always because of the population, right? So uh, you know, states like Massachusetts have hundreds of 911 centers. States like California obviously do, but it's a sort of a different mix. So, um, <clears throat> so there's not a single answer per se, but definitely funding because of this sort of need to maintain while we upgrade is an issue. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. Um, I just think overall recognition of the need for transitioning and leadership within a state. Is important where where states have strong uh, uh, leadership that has said, "Look, this is what we're going to do. This is our vision. By such and such date, we're going to have all of our 911 centers upgraded with their the, the equipment inside the PSAP right. and the networks that they're on. We're going to make this transition because there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of different equipment inside the 911 center. There's the network. You got to have some vision and and force of leadership to make it happen." Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's the authority to do so. Um, the states, you know, a lot of times there is leadership, but then there's a lack of authority. So you, you, you do have some some of those mixes as well. A bit of a, a governance issue. There are some governance issues as well, but, but funding is certainly key. I think we, we chatted earlier this morning about the fact that 
you know, most of the PSAPs, there, there is some change, but most of the PSAPs are counties that have one or, or even more will have, you know, had to pass a referendum through county commission or whatever and get, you know, the X percent of uh, fee on the phone bill. And that was done at a time when costs were fixed and relatively mm-hmm. known and there, there wasn't a lot going on. And, they, and, they, and the, the rule was effectively a percent of the base rate of the phone service that they were paying. Well, the phone landline phone service rates really haven't tugged around a whole lot. So in a lot of places, they, they're living with the same rate that they voted on maybe 10 or 15 years ago. There's a need to increase those funds, but nobody wants to vote for what they perceive as a tax, so they don't vote for increases in a lot of cases. I imagine the number of landline subscribers is the also landlines going down. The landlines go down, too. funding goes down, boom, there you have it. And it becomes a funding problem just by nature. And I think that's why a lot of people are looking at the federal government, not because it's going to replace or, or uh, you know, existing funding streams, not because anybody is suggesting that the, the federal government should fund 911 into perpetuity. Right. But as with many sort of major national infrastructure projects, and that's what I think we should think about this as, right? Um, there's a lot of discussion in Washington about infrastructure, right? Whether there's going to be funding available for infrastructure upgrades, whether it's bridges and you know anything else, but also broadband networks, right? I, I really believe policymakers need to think about the 911 system when they have that conversation about infrastructure upgrades with respect to broadband networks, because there is no more critical infrastructure than the nation's 911 system. It's aging. It uh, has limitations. It works for voice calls most of the time. But we have to make sure that that system gets upgraded. Um, and so, when people talk about federal funding for 911, you know, most of the time they're looking at the, at the the federal government as a source of transitional funding, right? So that we can maintain the current system, but that we can have a sufficient amount of funds available so that we can upgrade the networks, we can upgrade the equipment, um, we can necess- we can pr- ensure that there's proper training of folks to deal with new sources of information. Um, but over time, if we can help with that transition, um, you know, then the funding at the state and local level can continue to maintain that, that system going forward. Um, so that's, that's a critical role for federal government. So I want to pivot a little bit. Uh, we mentioned, mentioned FirstNet earlier and, and the transition that you know, the other half of, of public safety communications is, is going through from you know, legacy LMR networks to uh, to LTE, um, and you know it's starting to look a lot more commercial and a lot more cellular and a lot more mobile. How is how is the the nine one one system going to interface with FirstNet? Are there plans for that, or are there forecasts? What's that looking like? You can go first. Go ahead. So I I think there's definitely some some unknowns there. Um, a lot of people have a lot of a lot of ideas about how to leverage. You know what's going on with NG911 deployments and FirstNet, but I think you know kind of the one of the ways that we look at at FirstNet is NG911 is an ingress, and FirstNet could be considered an egress. You know, so it's a it's a public safety broadband network. So you get the calls in, you get the sensor data in, you get you get all the data in at the top of the pyramid, if you will, and then FirstNet is a is a beautiful and elegant network to expand and push that data out to the first responders and to other, um, you know, responsive individuals and, and agencies. So that, that's one way to look at it. And those points of intersection are going to be very critical. Uh, there's no question about it. That's how I look at it. So I, I grew up in a rural part of upstate New York, uh, 
you know, dirt roads, two and a half channels on my <laughs> broadcast television, uh, you know, 30 minutes to get anywhere, right? In- including if I had an emergency, it would take somebody <laughs> 28 minutes to get to me, right? Um, so I think of it as like this, you know, if I'm having, uh, let's say my, my mother or, or my sibling or whoever is having an emergency and I'm, and I'm able to communicate to the 911 center, not just my voice, which is all I'll be able to do today, but a real-time video stream of, you know, maybe there's a, a, a child being born and we're not going to have time to get to the hospital. Maybe somebody's having a heart attack. And, they, and, and I'm able to provide that information via the 911 center. They may be able to help me based on what they're seeing via different emergency dispatch protocols. Right. Or, and, and, and that right there is a, is a benefit, and that's just NG911, right? They can also, if we're connected via FirstNet, if there's an integration between the 911 center who's taking that information in and then being able to pass that information out to responders in the field, well, you know, when the EMS person is on route, they may be able to be part of that conversation. Correct. They can at least see it, right? Or, or an accident. Imagine an accident in rural, uh, middle of nowhere, Right. Um, as long as I've got wireless connectivity and I can, I can call, I can explain it, but I can also send an image of it. I can also stream a video of it directly in. And if they can then do that, if the 911 center sort of is in the middle of passing it on to the responders, um, you know, that just, that, that to me is the beauty of hopefully NG911 and FirstNet uh, working in, in tandem. So FirstNet and, uh, and, you know, the transition to, to next generation um, first responder communications faces, I think, a lot of similar problems or challenges that that you know nine one one modernization faces. In that, you've got haves and have not jurisdictions areas. Mm-hmm. Um, how crucial is it that that nine one one modernization take place in a more or less uniform fashion? Uh, extremely crucial. Uh, so I will say this, though. The, the FCC's Spectrum auction that generated revenue for FirstNet produced $7 billion. That same auction for NG911 produced $115 million. I'm all for lots of funding for FirstNet, <laughs> but we also need to look at whether or not there's been sufficient funding that's of, the, of a, an equivalent nature for NG911. And today there hasn't. Uh, so I know that there are discussions ongoing right now about whether or not there should be additional funding for NG911. Uh, I, I will point out that there is $115 million uh, in the pipeline, uh, which will be awarded via the National 911 office. They're in the process of determining sort of the, the formula for how that will happen, but there will be funding available, so folks should know that uh, next year. Uh, but as far as the haves and have-nots, um, totally important. Uh, that's state-to-state. State, that's within state. Um, it was interesting. I was at a, r- a roundtable with local police chiefs, uh, in Indianapolis a couple weeks ago, and one of the and a city councilmen said, essentially, like, our 911 center is not like most of Indiana, where it's very rural and smaller. And essentially, the, the, the comment was, there's only so long that we, the urban area, can continue to sort of provide the funding that enables everyone else to get up to speed. And at some point, we can't like we, you know we have to take care of our own system and we have to find some mechanism to make sure we don't have have and have nots out there i think one of the issues that we struggle with is public perception if you're you know in a in a uh, urban area in dc or arlington and you're used to some level of service you travel across the united states on vacation and have an issue and 
you know, middle America, you may not experience that same level of service. And so we, you know, that definitely needs to be addressed. And, you know, an example of that would be text to 911. And, you know, say it's, uh, you know, you've, you've had the, the public um, outreach from your local community. And so you, you assume that you have that level of expectation, you know, ubiquitously across the country. And if you, if you try to use that and expect it to be uh, expected to perform, it may not. And so that sometimes can be a problem. Um, and I would add also that um, in the, in the text model, um, you know, sometimes text will work when, when voice won't, you, you get network congestion um, and uh, uh, maybe a voice call won't go through, i.e. Um, if you're a football fan, college football fan like I am, you, you know if you go to the stadium on Saturday and you can't make a phone call, but everybody can text one another generally. So that's an example. And so uh, those expectations are you know, set with, with folks, and it's not, it's not, um, it's not national. You know, actually, the wireless 911 rollout is a good example. Um, so we talked about the first call from a landline phone being made in 1968. Uh, wireless, the first nine, well, so wireless out of, out, out of the gate, you know, as new technologies of all, uh, come online, communications capabilities, 911 is never the first thought. And I, I don't blame anybody. You're, you're thinking about like text messaging. This is amazing, right? You don't think about 911 from the beginning necessarily. Same with wireless. Mm-hmm. So when wireless first came out, there wasn't an, a, an obligation that you have a 911 location information with the call. And so it was in, the, it was in 1994 that the commission started first thinking about this in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a multi-phased, so you had different phases of location and accuracy requirements and capabilities. You had phase one, which meant what cell sector is it in? Like which tower is it near, right? Useful, not super useful, but better than nothing. And then we have phase two, which is a more precise location with the latitude and longitude, and it gets pretty accurate, right? Um, and so that process of getting 911, and so it was interesting because the 911 center had to be capable of receiving the location information from the carrier. And that's true of text today. No carrier has to do 911. They only have to do it when the, when the 911 center says they're capable. Um, and so it took decades, literally. There's still some areas that don't have... Enhanced 911 at all. It's, yeah, r- it's there's rare. There's still some that there's have a none. couple pockets of the, <laughs> and there's some communities in the country that don't have E911, but it's very rare. And that's, that's even for landline. Um, there are some areas where you're still only getting phase one, also very rare, but it happens. And so we had this like, you know, 15 year, 20 year process to go from to get every 911 center upgraded capable of receiving location information, just the location associated with a 911 call. Right. And there were haves and have nots in the sense that many areas of the same state, that depending on what the 911 center had done to upgrade, um, some could receive location information, some couldn't. And it took a long time. And so I think the idea of NG911 is let's have a national effort to get everyone upgraded as quickly as we can, the network upgraded, everybody with modern equipment inside their PSAP um, at the same time, not in you know pockets across the country. That would be a really bad outcome. Yeah, one thing I would add to that is that um, there is some perception uh, in the industry, you know, being in the, uh, my particular space is in the call handling equipment, often referred to as CPE at the PSAP, that if you buy an NG911 CPE and upgrade it to an NG911 capable call taking equipment, you are now NG911. And that is in fact not true. And so that perception also lags. So 
Patrick's point earlier, if we don't get the the carriers and the core services uh, doing their part, and then the network doing its part, you know, it's it's a three-legged stool, and all pieces have to interact before you actually get there. So it's um it's it, it's not a it's not a just update your piece app and you're golden. It it just doesn't work like that. So people need to take that into consideration. So the last thing I want to talk about is what everybody's talking about, and that's cybersecurity. Um, we hear a lot about it from the you know data breach perspective, um, things like that. But how is how is cybersecurity taken into consideration with you know the PSAP of today, and how will it be taken into consideration tomorrow? So um, cybersecurity means a lot of different things to a, a lot of different people. Um, denial of service attacks is the most uh, you know, common interpretation of that in, in today's camo world where you're limited to legacy uh, camo trunks, you know, it's easy to, you know, flood a 911 center uh, or 911 centers off of any selective router with a lot of calls and it, it virtually disables uh, that PSAP. All camo trunks are tied up, no calls come in. And if your backup PSAP is also tied up and your alternate backup is tied up, then these calls ultimately result in fast busy. That's ultimately what you'll get, uh, which means, you know, nothing is available. That in the analog world is, is a cyber attack, effectively. So that, that does occur. It's rare, thankfully, but it does occur. Well, you transition that to the new world of IP when you have a, maybe a 10 or 20 megabyte pipe into your PSAP or two, and redundancy is always recommended. Um, you know, now you're only limited to the amount of calls that that pipe can take. Do I want 100 calls at a time? And what would happen if I got a, a denial of service attack when my bandwidth would allow all this activity? Where do I throttle that? How often do I throttle it? By what? By when? So not only is it a cyber attack issue, it's a policy issue now uh, where you have to take many, many points of that, those things into consideration. And then, you know, network or CPU providers and network providers like Motorola, we we take a more proactive approach to, to some of these things. So all of our systems have um, uh, sophisticated routers and firewalls built into the system right, right at the outset. So it's not something that you add on later. And I think that, um, you know, we need, we need a little bit more of that capability. So, and then in and then lastly, in the NG core services network, the transitioning network, uh, there's border control functions and uh, other things at all the different edge points where you have all these meet me points of network. Uh, where standards, um, you know, have a, have adapted and, and managed the, so this is the best you can, but it's a private network, it's on an island, and it's supposed to be relatively uh, isolated. But as we talked about earlier, Internet of Things, connectivity of networks, inevitably are going to create a, a larger surface area for attack, and it's, it's got to be closely monitored. Right. I mean, it's a much more open system than the legacy system of the past. There's a lot more players uh, involved providing different functionalities, right? It's not just, you know, the telephone company delivering calls over their closed network, right? Um, so it's, and it, but it's not the internet either, right? It's We're not. talking about managed private IP networks here. Um, and, and there is cybersecurity being built into these networks and, and into the CPE that's inside the 911 centers. Uh, but it's a risk, right? I mean, look, banks, the SEC, <laughs> Equifax, like right, sophisticated players dealing with lots of money get 
cyber attacks, and sometimes they, they are not able to block everything. Um, but there's a ton of great work going on, you know, within the federal government, looking at cybersecurity issues, and, and within industry, right? Because right. they're, they're oh, motivated yeah. plenty by themselves to have secure Lots systems. motivation. So it's absolutely a risk, but it's one that we can manage, um, and we just have to ensure. I think what's most important is that as, as industry best practices uh, are being developed, that the 911 center, it has to be a priority, right? Just like it is for anybody else, mm-hmm. it needs to be a priority for the 911 center to have their systems as secure as possible. I think it's really important. He, he mentioned the internet. Um, I think it's really important that, that folks understand that these systems are not on the internet. They use internet technologies and internet capabilities and advances in internet uh, technologies, but they're not on the public internet. That's right. I can't tell you how many demonstrations and PSAP meetings I've been in because we have a web services uh, approach to, to our design that was just a little unique. And sometimes that's associated with, oh, it's using internet technologies. It must be on the internet. And so we, we need to do a better job of public education that, uh, that you know, we don't spook, spook people. Yeah, but, and, and some of the risks are also the benefits, right? So uh, if you have 50 PSAPs in a region, right, and they're all sharing the same network and they're sharing either the same CPE or compatible CPE, right. You know, when there's a cybersecurity upgrade, we can we can do it's software driven, right? I mean, we can upgrade the cybersecurity capability um, for all of them quickly. It's not like we have to go nine one one center by nine one one center. It, it's there 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 are capabilities uh, based on using internet net protocol capabilities, right. using cloud based services that we can do a lot of things now that affect a lot more nine one centers all at the same time than we ever could have in the past, which is great. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys both for joining me today, for taking the time to be on our podcast. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. This has been TIA's policy podcast series, DC Beat. And my guests today were Craig Dollar of Motorola Solutions and Patrick Halley of the NG911 Institute and Wilkinson Barker Nauer. If you'd like to get upcoming episodes, you can subscribe to us via iTunes or from our website at tiaonline.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. For more than 90 years, TIA has been at the intersection of access and influence. As a nonprofit organization, TIA engages regularly with key policymakers and influencers on behalf of our members, providing timely intelligence on important legislative and regulatory issues impacting your business. For more information on how to get involved and the benefits of membership, go to TIAonline.org. 